listening to the Canadian Streetlight Podcast with Aaron Hale and Mike Ferrier as your hosts. Subscribe to the podcast at CanadianStreetlight.ca. Soli Deo Gloria. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Streetlight Podcast. And I've been thinking about, uh, I guess often is the case, what is the gospel? As Paul said in Romans 1.16, that he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. And yet the question often remains, what is the gospel? What is it that Paul wasn't ashamed of? What is it that is the power of God unto salvation? And so, uh, as I posted previously, I was going to post another uh, sermon by Martin Lloyd-Jones from the MLJ Trust as he talks about, from Romans 1, uh, the gospel of God. And so I trust you will be encouraged and blessed by this, as I have been, and just continuing to use these great resources from those who have gone before us carrying the gospel light. So this is Martin Lloyd-Jones looking at the gospel of God. You will remember that we are still considering the first verse of the first chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. We have seen together that the apostle is here introducing himself, and he describes himself as a servant of Jesus Christ, a called apostle, but also one who has been separated unto the gospel of God. Now, we've considered his account and description of himself in that threefold manner. So now we are in a position to go on to consider what he tells us here about that unto which he has been separated. He is convinced, he knows, that God had separated him from his mother's womb to this peculiar task of preaching and proclaiming the gospel. He's been separated unto that. And you notice that he describes it and defines it as the gospel of God. Now, here again, we are face to face with something which is of the utmost importance for us. The apostle here, as I shall have occasion to say probably many times, is pressing into a very small space the great content of his gospel. It's uh, even a synopsis compressed, if you like. But that makes it, of course, doubly important for us uh, to be sure that we do see something, at any rate, of the great content which he thus uh, puts into so few words. And the best thing we have to do, therefore, the best thing we can do is to just look at the words themselves. He's been separated, he says, unto the gospel. Now, I often feel that we are so familiar with this word gospel that we uh, fail to realize its deep and its tremendous significance. It means, as everybody knows, good news. And it's just that I fear at times that we tend to forget. We turn up our dictionaries and we find that gospel means that. And we stop at that. We've known the exact meaning. We are philologists. We're interested in words and their meanings and their derivations. And often our whole study of the scripture ends with the words. We end with a letter 
and we've never succeeded in arriving at the Spirit. If we say that we know that gospel means good news, the really important question for us, therefore, is this. Is the gospel good news to us? Has it come to us as good news? Is that our real understanding of the thing itself, and not merely the word in which it is described? Now, the apostle, of course, was very concerned about this. He can never mention this word or any, come anywhere near it without obviously being thrilled and moved to the very depth of his being. And I believe that he introduces the word like this at once in order to remind us of certain contrasts. He is now a preacher of good news, no longer, by contrast, a teacher of the law. He had been a teacher of the law. He was a Pharisee, as we've seen, and a great expert. But there was no good news about the law. The law was never meant to be good news. The law, as we shall find in saying, was added because of transgressions. The law had come in in order to pinpoint sin. The law had never been given as a means or a method or a way of salvation. You can't think of the law in any sense as good news, though there is, uh, uh, to be it's certain and it's true, an element of grace in the law. The law as such is not a gospel. It's not good news. Now, there are many uh, who seem to fail to understand that. They seem to think that God gave the children of Israel the law in order to give them an opportunity of saving themselves. But the apostle will be at great pains to say that that is a tragic misunderstanding of the law. And therefore to think that the gospel only came in as an afterthought when the law had failed is just to misunderstand both the law and the gospel. No, no, it isn't law, says Paul. He's no longer a teacher of the law. He is a herald of good news. Or in the same way we can say that the gospel uh, is not merely an announcement that God is going to forgive sins. Because that again was something that was known under the old dispensation. There is a very great and wonderful doctrine of forgiveness of sins in the Old Testament. So the peculiar thing about the gospel is not just that either. And it is again to misunderstand the gospel to think of it solely as a message which announces that our sins are going to be forgiven. There are abundant statements of that in the Old Testament documents. It isn't that. That isn't the good news. And another negative which perhaps is very important is this one. This message is not primarily an appeal to us to do anything. That, is, that again would not be good news. Uh, there are people, as you know, who seem to think of the gospel, the Christian message, as just a, a great appeal to men and women to live a good life, to be moral and to be ethical and so on. Now, uh, it's not for me to criticize others, but I have no doubt at all that a good deal of that kind of thing will be heard next Sunday. On any national or civic occasion, that is the kind of thing one hears, and uh, appeals are, uh, are made for behavior and loyalty to the country and so on and so forth. Uh, that's, that's not good news. It's not gospel, therefore. It's not the Christian message. But so often it passes as the Christian message. 
It's sometimes given the designation uh, public school religion, uh, which is an appeal simply for conduct and for behavior. But that's not Christianity. That's not gospel. To make an appeal to people isn't to herald good news to them. Indeed, it's almost the exact opposite. If you simply tell people that they ought to be better and that they must make a great effort to be better, you're not bringing good news to them. But Paul says that he's a herald of a gospel. He's been separated to give good news. Well, what is this? Well, obviously it is something new. It's something unique. It's something very special. And, of course, the apostle goes on later to tell us exactly what it is. He gives us a hint of it straight away here. It's something concerning God's Son. Indeed, it's something concerning God himself and what he's done. As I say, it is not primarily an appeal to us to do anything. It is an announcement and a proclamation to us of what God has already done. You see, he puts it like this so magnificently in verses 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? It is the power of God unto salvation. Not an exhortation to men to save themselves. God's way of saving. God's power unto salvation to everyone that believeth. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is a righteousness from God revealed. That's the new thing. Now, that's the thing that you don't find in the Old Testament. You see, it isn't there. The forgiveness is there. But this full exposition of this righteousness from God is the new and the special and the unique thing which makes the gospel the gospel. And it is because he realizes that, that the apostle, I say, always thrills to it. Now, that statement I've just read... Uh, is an example of what we may call lighterties. I am not ashamed of, by which he really means, I take pride in, I burst of. Nothing else to me is so great as this. It's one of those positive statements which is given a negative form. He says, I'm not ashamed. He means, I'm absolutely thrilled by it. I can scarcely contain myself. Well, now, this then is the first thing we must always realize about the gospel. And this, you see, is something that, according to the Bible, always must characterize the gospel. If you go back to the Old Testament and look at the prophecies of the coming of this gospel, you'll find that they're all of them lyrical. Think of Isaiah 35. Think of Isaiah 55. When this comes, the lame man's going to be leaping like a heart. And everybody's going to be singing and rejoicing. That's the note. The mere thought of it, the suggestion of it, always brings in this element of praise and of rejoicing and of thanksgiving. And you noticed what we read together in that passage from the second chapter of Luke's Gospel just now. The same point comes out exactly. The angel appears to those shepherds in the field at night he says, look here, I've got good tidings of great joy for you. That's the note. Good tidings. Gospel. And you remember that after they'd gone to Bethlehem and had verified these things, we are told that they went back rejoicing and with a great joy. That's the introduction to the gospel. 
And the heavenly choir sang praises unto God. And they said, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill amongst men, and so on. Now this, therefore, obviously, is something which is very vital to the gospel, and an essential part of it. Well now, my friends, there's no point in our going further until I ask a question. And the question again is this. Has it come to us like that? Can we say honestly at this moment that this is the greatest and the biggest and the best good news that we've ever heard? I'm getting to the position in which I feel I can say that if we cannot say that, well then to put it at its mildest, we ought to be very doubtful as to whether we are Christians at all. This is either the greatest good news we've ever heard, or else it isn't. And if it isn't such to us, well, there are, there, there are reasons for that. If you are not aware of the fact that this is the greatest good news that has ever come into this world or has ever been received by men, it may be due to the fact that you have an inadequate sense of sin and an inadequate realization of your own sinfulness. Because people who think that they're all right as they are, because they're such good people and because they're li living such good lives, the gospel is not good news to them. They've never seen any need of help. And therefore they don't thrill at it, and they don't see how wonderful it is. Those who think they can put themselves right are in the same position. There is no doubt about this at all. An inadequate understanding of our sinfulness is probably the greatest single cause of a failure to rejoice in the Lord always and to realize that this message is the greatest good news that the world has ever received. Let us therefore examine ourselves. If you are lacking in joy, the thing to do is not to try to work up some joy within yourself. It's to go to the Bible, to the law, and convict yourself of sin. The positive road to joy is always via the depth of sin. That's one thing. Or another one, perhaps, is this. It is a failure on our part to realize the consequences of sin. If we adopt the modern philosophy and attitude of not believing in hell and in eternal punishment and believing that because God is love that, oh, everybody will be all right in the end somehow, or if we believe that uh, after death our souls are annihilated and uh, go out of existence, a temporary amount of punishment, but that it comes to an end and that the whole thing is conditional, well, of course, as we detract in that way from the punishment of sin, so we are detracting from the good news of the gospel. And again, that is often a fruitful cause of this. The only other one I would mention is this. It is a failure to realize the greatness of the salvation itself. I mean by that that we tend to reduce it only to forgiveness. Uh, concerned, as so many of us are, just about escaping the punishment and hell, we want forgiveness. And we feel we've got it and there it ends. We haven't seen it in its height and its depth, its breadth and its length. The greatness of it all. Well, now the apostle, obviously is concerned about the greatness and the glory of the gospel. That's why he's writing this letter to them. He wants them to know about it. 
He's heard that they're already in the faith, but he seems to wonder whether they really have grasped it. He takes up his pen. And inspired as he knows himself to be, and with all the authority of a called apostle, he's going to display it to them in all its fullness and in all its grandeur. The gospel. Oh, how easily we use this term. How glibly we repeat it. I'm as guilty as anybody else. It ought to be impossible for us to use the very word gospel without bursting forth, as it were, into a hymn of praise and of thanksgiving. Good news from God. That's the gospel. Nothing less. Very well. Well, now then, that brings me to the most important thing of all. It is the gospel of God. The gospel of God. The good news, in other words, is what God has done about men and about his salvation. And that is why, of course, it's quite unique and quite new. I'm going to write to you, says the Apostle, not about some human philosophy. I'm not going to give you my own idea as to how life should be lived. I'm not going to tell you what man has got to do. I'm going to tell you what God has done. That's it. The gospel of God, it's good news from God. Now, this description here, this definition of the gospel, I think you'll agree, is a very striking one. There are other descriptions given of the gospel in the New Testament. It's called the gospel of peace, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of salvation, the everlasting gospel, and there are other titles and designations and adjectives used. But surely there is none which is used so constantly, especially by this apostle, as this present one in some shape or form. The gospel of God. But the apostle doesn't leave it, you notice, even at that. He does something here which I must now proceed to emphasize, praying that the Holy Spirit will enable us all to see its absolute primacy and centrality. You notice that at once the apostle introduces us to the great and central doctrine of the blessed Holy Trinity. Listen to him. Paul separated, he says, unto the gospel of God. Leave out verse 2 for a moment. It's in brackets, and rightly so. The gospel of God concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit, capital S, the Spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit, by the resurrection from the dead. That's the gospel that he's been separated unto. It is a gospel in which God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are concerned. It is the work, the special work, the glorious work of the three persons, each one of them taking part in it. Now, the apostle, as I've been reminding you, 
is writing under the influence and guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, when he puts it like this, he's not doing something accidental. He's not doing something that he might have left out. It is absolutely vital to his whole position that this should be emphasized. Let me try to bring that out in this way. There are some people who seem to conceive of the gospel solely in terms of the Father. You talk to them, they say that they're Christians and that they believe the gospel. Well, then you ask them to, to tell you, well, what do you mean by the gospel? What do you mean by being a Christian? And they will tell you. And you listen to them and you notice that they end without even mentioning the name of the Lord Jesus Christ at all. They talk a lot about God. They talk about receiving forgiveness from God. They talk about praying to God. They talk about being guided by God, and so on. But the whole of their talk finishes without the very mention of the name of the Son. And yet they regard themselves as Christians. They seem to have a kind of Christianity apart from the sun. Now, this has been always the peculiar danger of people who are natural mystics. The mystics, you see, not only believe in God, they know, they believe, that it is possible for one to get to an intimate knowledge of God, to a direct experience of God. That's all right. But the trouble with the mystics generally is that they think that that is possible and they go on to seek it without the Lord Jesus Christ at all. They take up their manuals on mysticism and they go through the stages, the dark night of the soul, and so on and so on, until they reach that final stage of contemplation. It's a constant danger with the mystics. They say what you've got to do is, is to turn in and examine yourself and look into yourself that God is in you. There are many books which have taught this. Some of them have been very popular. Take a book which was very popular 40 years ago and just beyond called In Tune with the Infinite by a man called Prime. It, it, it had a great vogue amongst many Christian people. But now it's a typical illustration of what I'm saying. It's, it offers you an experience of God directly without the Lord Jesus Christ being absolutely essential. Now then, there's one danger. The Father only. But let us be quite fair and admit that there are some who seem to put their entire stress and emphasis upon the Son only and entirely forget the Father. Now, these are the people who sometimes even go so far as to give the impression that God the Father is even reluctant to forgive us. And they picture, you find it in certain hymns, they picture the Lord Jesus Christ as having to plead with his Father to forgive us. That he goes there and he says, I have died for them, I have bought them, and there he has to persuade God to forgive. To them, you see, the whole of Christianity is in the Son only. And the Father, I say, is someone who has taken no part in it and who indeed almost seems to be reluctant to listen to the pleadings of his Son, as if the Son had to persuade the Father. That's the second danger. 
And then, of course, there is the third, which tends to put the whole of its emphasis upon the Holy Spirit. Isn't it amazing how ready we all are to go astray and to fall into error? Isn't it our one and only comfort this evening that we are his workmanship, and that he who hath begun a good work in us will perform it? If he didn't go on with it, we'd all go astray somewhere or another. And here it is, you see, some Father only, some Son only, some the Holy Spirit only. They again want power or something like that. They're interested in experiences or in power or in something like that. And therefore they go instinctively to this doctrine of the Holy Spirit. It's a very subtle danger, this. I don't know that this is an occasion, perhaps, for personal confessions. But I am very well aware of this third danger, because I once spent a certain amount of time in it myself. In other words, you can be interested in the doctrine of regeneration without seeing the absolute necessity of the atonement. And there are many illustrations of that in this country today. There are people who can talk quite rightly and soundly about rebirth, being born again, regeneration, life from God, but they don't believe in the atonement. They're conscious of the need of new life and of new power, and they see that it's offered. Yes, but they go directly there, they bypass the cross. There are people who talk about being in contact with the living Christ through the Spirit, who again bypass Calvary entirely and see no substitutionary atonement. It's a most subtle danger. Well, uh, it's just my business tonight to remind you that there are those three possible errors and dangers unless we are very careful. But each one of them is wrong. Each one of them, you see, has a modicum of truth and a certain amount of truth. And that is what makes them dangerous. There is nothing so dangerous as to ex exaggerate a part of truth into the whole of truth. What these three say is quite all right, except that they leave out other parts which are equally vital and essential. For the teaching of the scripture is, as we see here, that salvation is the work of the three persons in the blessed Holy Trinity. It is primarily that of the Father, the gospel of God concerning his son. The father first. It's the father's idea. It's the father's plan. It's the father's purpose. It's the father who initiates it. It's the father who gave the first promise concerning it to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And all we must be clear about this we must not go on to consider what the Son has done, what the Holy Spirit has done and does, until we are absolutely clear about the primacy of the Father and the origin of it all in the Father himself. Isn't it amazing that we can ever forget it? If there's one verse in the Bible that everybody knows, it's John 3.16. And you see what John 3.16 says is this, God soul of the world, that he, God, the Father, gave his only begotten Son. 
You notice the order? It's God who's done it. It's God who's initiated it all. He is the promoter, as it were, and the prompter of it all. God the Father. The Lord Jesus Christ himself was always at great pains to emphasize this. You read the Gospel according to St. John particularly, and keep your eye on this, and you'll find him saying time and time again, the words that I speak, I speak not of myself. The works that I do, he says, they're not mine, they're the works of the Father. That is his constant emphasis. If you want it all absolutely summarized perfectly, you've simply got to turn to the 17th chapter of John's Gospel, where our Lord in his high priestly prayer says, Father, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. He was sent by the Father. He was given the work to do by the Father. He was sustained and enabled to do it by the Holy Spirit, but it was the Father who sent him. It was the Father who prescribed the work. It was the Father who gave him the people. It is always what the Father has done. He came to glorify the Father. Father, he says, I have glorified thee on the earth. It was the whole center of his life. The glory of his Father. The work which his Father had given him to do. And of course you will find that emphasis everywhere in the epistles of this Apostle Paul. What is the gospel? It's this. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. He, God, hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. When the fullness of the times was come, God sent forth his own Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that are under the law. And I could go on quoting him at great length, as you know. But it's always God the Father. And yet, you see, I say this is forgotten by so many. They are so Christocentric, if I may say so, that they forget the Father himself, from whom it all comes. You'll find it in their prayers. They always pray to the Lord Jesus, not to the Father. They're entirely centered on the Son. But this, my friends, is wrong if you make him the center, because he is not the center. The center is the Father. You remember how the Apostle Peter puts that? He says that the Lord Jesus Christ has died for what reason? For this reason, to bring us to God. The whole purpose of the work of the Son is to bring us to God the Father. Take his definition of eternal life. This is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent, always the order. He never varies it. He never did. He had come to glorify the Father. He knew that everything starts with the Father and comes from the Father. So that the author of salvation is God the eternal Father. Now, my friends, I must pause again to emphasize this and to ask a question. Is that our idea of salvation? When we think of salvation, do we think of it instinctively in terms of the Father and the glory of the Father? We should. 
We mustn't stop in our thinking of salvation in terms of ourselves or any experience we've had. We may be happy, we may be more joyful, we may be not committing certain sins. Excellent, thank God for it. But if your account of salvation stops there, if you don't go on to glorify the Father, your conception of salvation is very inadequate. Indeed, it is entirely unlike what we find in the New Testament. Not only that, our conduct, our behavior, the result of this salvation, must also point in the same direction. The object of salvation is to bring us to glorify God. What is sin? Well, sin is failure to glorify God. But you see, we don't often put it like that, do we? If, if we are asked what is sin, oh, we say sin means that you do this or that or something else that you shouldn't do. And therefore, when you're converted, you, your testimony is this. I no longer do those things. I'm no longer interested. And you say, that's my testimony. I used to do this, that, and the other. I was a drunkard or something else. I'm no longer there. Well, that's excellent, as I say. But you know, that's a very poor, a very inadequate, and a very negative way to describe salvation. The essence of sin is to fail to glorify God. Man was made to glorify God. The chief end of men, the Shorter Catechism tells us, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And you see, if we only defined sin as the failure to do that, we would see how everybody's a sinner. And we'd see how your most respectable people can sometimes be the most terrible sinners. They've never been guilty of these particular sins, of course not. But they don't glorify God, they glorify themselves. So many people say, I can't feel that I'm a sinner, I've never felt it. That's because they're thinking in terms of sins. If only they saw that sin really is just a failure to glorify God with the whole of your being all the time, they'd see that they're terrible sinners. Now, if that is sin, salvation must be this, that we are brought into a state and condition in which we live to glorify God. He's the center of our life, the center of our conversation. How often do we, in giving our testimonies, Thus glorify God. It's the test of Christianity. The apostle starts with it. It's the gospel of God. Very well then. If that is the point at which we stop, it is not surprising that we find Paul in writing to Timothy describing the gospel like this. He calls it the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Or if you prefer it, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. It's the plan of the Father. It's the great movement of the eternal God himself. But it, has been some, it is something that has been worked out through the Son and by the Son. The Father sent the Son to do it. It is the gospel of God concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and what he's done. But it's God who sent him to do it. Very well. So the Son comes in in that second position and in that way. And it is thirdly, as he reminds us here, something 
which is applied to us by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enabled the Son. You remember he came upon him there as he was baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist. He descended upon him in the form of a dove. And the Gospel of John tells us that God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. He filled him with the Spirit. And he was enabled to do his work through the Spirit in this way. So the three persons you see are of necessity involved. And the moment the Apostle mentions the word Gospel, he thinks of the three persons of the Blessed Holy Trinity. The Gospel, then, is the mighty action of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, whereby we are saved. It is God's provision for us in our desperate need and plight. It was something that had been mentioned under the Old Testament dispensation. It's now happened, says Paul. That's why I call it good news. I'm going to tell you exactly what has taken place. Now, we must pause at this point to indicate this. The apostle here does something that is characteristic of the whole of the biblical teaching. This is the way that the Bible teaches the doctrine of the Blessed Holy Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is never stated directly in the Scripture, always indirectly. There is not any explicit statement to the fact that God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is no such definition. The way in which the Bible states it is the way in which the Apostle states it here. The Gospel of God concerning his, his Son and then the Spirit of Holiness, the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just give you some other illustrations of the same thing in order that this may be clearly fixed in all our minds. You get the same thing, of course, exactly at the baptism of our Lord. There is the sun standing in the, in the waters of Jordan. The Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descends upon him. And the voice of the Father comes out of heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Not again an explicit statement, but the three together, three distinct persons in the one Godhead. The Son says, I and the Father are one. And you'll find other statements. Let's take, for instance, what I was going to mention next. The teaching in the 14th chapter of John. Where our Lord says that he's going to leave them. But that he's not going to leave them orphans. He's going to send the Holy Spirit. And he talks about the Holy Spirit as he. And because the Holy Spirit is coming into them, he and the Father are going to take up their abode in the believer. You see the same idea. The three persons and yet one Godhead, one God. 
That's how the Bible teaches this doctrine. You get it again at the end of the Gospel according to St. Matthew where our Lord gives his great commission to his apostles to go out to preach and to disciple all the nations, baptizing them, he says, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And the fact that we are to be baptized in the names of the three is a tremendous declaration of the equality and the co-eternity of the three. It's the whole doctrine of the Blessed Holy Trinity. And then you remember how this Apostle Paul, at the end of his second epistle to the Corinthians, says the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you. The three persons again, you see. He doesn't sit down and say, now there are three persons in the Blessed Trinity. No, he puts it in this way. That is the biblical way of doing it. And so many people have failed to understand that. And then you've got another remarkable illustration of it in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14. Where we read, Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself to God. Now, there are many other examples and illustrations of the same thing. I've simply selected some for you this evening. And I do so in order to make this point. How important it is as we read the scriptures or study them that we should be alive and alert to these things. You have to look for them. They're here. If you just look for them, if you pay attention to what you're reading, notice what he says. Gospel of God concerning his Son, Spirit of Holiness. As we read our scriptures, therefore, let us always ever keep our eyes on the way in which these glorious and mighty and eternal doctrines are suddenly introduced. It's not surprising that the Apostle Paul started with this. My friends, the doctrine of the Trinity is the differentiating doctrine of the Christian faith. There is no question at all about this. A famous theologian once said, the doctrine of the Trinity is the heart of Christianity. And it's absolutely right. It is the thing that makes our gospel absolutely unique. There are other religions that believe in God, but there is not another that preaches and teaches the blessed Holy Trinity. So that it is absolutely essential to us as Christians that we should have a clear grasp of this doctrine of the Trinity, the three persons in the Godhead. Equal, co-equal, co-eternal. And yet they have divided this work in this way. How essential that we should understand it. It influences the whole of our thinking. There are some people who seem to be most excited at the present time by what is called apologetics. They read in their newspapers, like you may have read this morning, that the scientists are now on the verge of saying that virgin birth is a possibility after all, parthenogenesis. You read it this morning. 
And Christians sometimes feel now this is going to be wonderful. Our whole position is going to be established. My dear friend, if your position is going to depend upon what scientists may or may not say, well then I tremble for you. They have their fashions. They say a thing and then it's denied. No, no. What I'm saying is this. It's all right as far as it goes. You've heard about the famous proofs of the existence of God. All right as far as they go. But let's remember that as Christians, we are not simply men and women who believe in God. We believe in the blessed Holy Trinity. We believe in the triune God. The Mohammedans believe in God. The unregenerate Jews believe in God. There are others who believe in God. The essence of Christianity, the heart of Christianity, is that we believe in the three persons, one God. Paul is going on to prove it, that Jesus is the Son of God, born of the seed of David according to the flesh, declared to be the Son of God with power. Yes, he is God the Son. And equally true is it to say, God the Holy Spirit. We must be Trinitarians. We can't afford to be slack or loose in our ideas about this. It is the very heart of Christianity, the essence of our position, that the three glorious eternal persons, for us men and our salvation, have done these mighty things that the Apostle goes on to unfold in this glorious epistle. Oh, may God enable us to see the primacy and the centrality and the all-importance of the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. Let us pray. Oh, Lord our God, we come into thy presence conscious that we have been talking together about things that baffle the mind and the understanding. But, O oh God, we thank Thee that we are not saved by our understanding, but by the great and glorious truth itself. And, O oh, we would thank Thee for the revelation of it in Thy Word. We thank Thee, O oh God, at this marvelous, amazing, astounding thing which has been done for us. O oh Lord, open our minds, enlighten the eyes of our understanding. Help us to receive and to believe these things truly, that we may realize the greatness of thy love and see that it is only this that could have saved us or rescued us from the depths of sin and woe. O oh Lord, forgive us that our hearts are so cold, that we can receive these things without being moved in the very vitals of our life. O oh God, display them to us, we pray thee in such a manner, that we, like those shepherds of old, shall go on our way rejoicing and singing because of this great good news Glad tidings of great joy, bringing to us the knowledge of what thou hast done for us through Jesus Christ thy Son, 
and by thy Holy Spirit. And now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this night throughout the remainder of this hour short and certain earthly life and pilgrimage and evermore. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust Audio Library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust dot o-r-g. Thank you for tuning in to the Canadian Streetlight Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or perhaps a podcast suggestion or topic, visit us online at canadianstreetlight.ca. Soli Deo Gloria.